Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. I'm, I'm talking to you today from that sort of professional experience, but also as a parent who has uh, been put in an unusual situation um, of uh, having to homeschool children. But more broadly, uh, to tap into some of the issues of, uh, uh, that's um, been troubling the uh, education sector in England uh, and the UK more broadly over the last 40 years uh, since um, it uh, moved from a primarily state-funded, um, centrally organised sector to a free market. Uh, and some of my reflections and uh, yes, speculations are to do with what COVID-19 is telling us about free market education but through the lens of uh, the experiences of education that I have had. So my research uh, is based on the premise that we human beings learn in relationships with other human beings. Our learning begins when we are very young in the family uh, and uh, with the adults that surround us when we are infants uh, and we learn informally uh, through the interactions that we have with parents, carers and siblings and also intergenerational relationships that we have with uh, aunts and uncles, uh, step-parents and grandparents. This informal learning becomes more formal uh, when we enter schools and schools are the institutions uh, where um, a set of uh, outcomes is expected um, set out and delivered by uh, teachers who are trained for the purpose of specialising in educating young people. I think what happened uh, when the schools closed um, did something interesting to, to those, uh, those uh, relationships uh, to do with whose responsibility it was to teach children uh, of school age. And the, the distinction between teachers' responsibility for learning and parents' responsibility for learning, guardians' responsibility for learning, became very blurred. And suddenly we were all presented um, with um, the idea of homeschooling. Um, this is particularly difficult for the 4.6 million households where, uh, with children under the age of 16 who have two working parents, uh, or where all the parents are working. That's 3.7 million where, uh, households where there's a couple working, um, and 842,000 where there's a lone parent working. So these were parents who were working and uh, trying to homeschool. So after uh, a, a sort of strange period of uncertainty and the sort of turmoil that went uh, along with the uh, arrival of the coronavirus in the UK. A gradual vision emerged of learning in lockdown and it looked a little bit like this. Um, this is taken from um, my camera and, and it shows a, a, a kind of um, ideal scenario. What you see here is um, a child playing a game called Battleships um, and behind the, 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 the game is a tablet 
on a tablet as his friend who's he's uh, skyping and they're communicating to each other the position of their battleships um, and moving their own ships and each other's ships uh, at the same time. So in this example uh, where the school sets some work uh, that, for the children to revise um, grid references, uh, this is a primary age uh, school, key stage two, they also suggested uh, that uh, this is a game, a fun way uh, to try and, and revise this. So they, they, they were doing this and they were enjoying it, but you could see that there are other benefits um, emerging. So you can see that there's been a space organised for learning. It includes um, a snack or possibly lunch. Um, you can see that there's a quite intense concentration going on there. Uh, you can't quite see this, but his sibling is uh, playing FIFA on the sofa beside him. You can just see the, 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 the corner of the screen. Uh, he can use Skype now and he also, uh, or they began organising um, follow-up times where they could meet each other and arrange to Skype for other activities. Um, and they were bonding. They already knew each other, but they were bonding remotely. Um, and what this sort of pointed to was a sort of growing self-reliance, which is quite interesting. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, this is this is a very strange time and it, it, it came out of a period of time where children were um, it's un, ne, not necessarily um, always given space to show that self-reliance as increasingly in recent years uh, concentration on the, the content of the curriculum has grown. Um, so one of the questions really is how much is this kind of learning covering that content, the content of the national curriculum um, and for older children in secondary school for exam uh, syllabuses? Um, so this is a very important question to consider if, like we have in the UK, we are operating education as a free market. Just brief historical background, John Major's government, uh, Conservative government, introduced uh, the Citizen Charter um, and education was um, singled out for particular um, interest in this, and especially the roles of parents. Um, parents had always been provided with uh, reports on their children, but the Citizen Charter was premised on the idea that parents should have some freedom of choice about where to send their school, uh, their children to school. And they, they needed information uh, in order to, to make that choice. And the publication of schools results uh, in the form of league tables began and a more stringent inspection under the um, auspices of the Office for Standards in Education, Ofsted, uh, began um, regularly to make judgments in schools which affected their standing in the league tables. So under a free market education parents are consumers of education and in order to consume they need information and that information is provided uh, not by schools directly but um, is published widely from the information that schools gather. And from this point onwards the dominant discourse uh, of education began to change quite radically. 
some of the premises of the this dominant narrative of the free market of education relied on a particular view of learning, learning that involved people following a set path, fairly rigid, in order to achieve the goals of uh, education and go on to leave education to have some kind of success in later life. These goals and the steps to success were increasingly narrowly defined as academic and by that I mean related very closely to the kinds of outcomes that were specified in documents that were produced by the government such as the national curriculum which has been revised several times since it was first introduced uh, and in the 90s and also in exam syllabi which have been also regularly revised. In 2015, there was a, a change in the focus of um, the steps to success when the levels that had been associated with the national curriculum, which covered primary key stage one and two and secondary key stage three, uh, were removed so from that point onward, each school had to devise their own way of measuring the success of their students in terms of the progress that they were making. And this caused a, a, a deepening fragmentation of some of the social inequalities that education had always, unfortunately, been party to perpetuating. So I would like you to just bear in mind that that view of learning that underpins the ideas that are associated with this free market idea uh, of education as we move on to think about what this effect this had on school closure uh, when the schools closed uh, when COVID-19 arrived in the UK in March. So not only were exams cancelled and schools shut and uh, homeschooling began, but suddenly schools were no longer able to give information about the learning that was, uh, that was happening for, for children, what progress they were making, um, or how it was affecting them mentally. And there's an awful lot in the newspapers about this, uh, but there's very little uh, research has been done to date. However, uh, two weeks ago, um, with something significant uh, came out from the uh, NFER, which tried to measure engagement. So by asking 3,000 uh, school heads and staff about how many pieces of work were being returned and how regularly, it became clear that there are big differences in how home learning is, being, uh, students, uh, is affecting students. And you can see that engagement is least among these groups of people. So where there's a high uptake of free school meals, which is often equated with um, de uh, deprivation. Um, children who have limited space to study or limited uh, access to IT. Children who are vulnerable in the educational sense, that's mean they're in contact with student services 
pupils with special educational needs are attracting premium, pupil premium funding and young carers. What's interesting was that they divided that, those 3,000 responses into uh, quintiles, so groups of uh, five groups of 20% each, and uh, analysed this uh, engagement in terms of the deprivation from the most to the least deprived. And they found that although there were only 30% of engagement from the most deprived areas, uh, less than 50% uh, of students who were in the least deprived areas were actually engaging. Uh, and by that, it means returning work to their, uh, that had been set by their school. So it seems to be that there's a, an unequal impact is going to be had on all pupils um, from the move to homeschooling that may have consequences now and going on into the future. Um, I'm getting towards the end of my presentation now, but I thought it would be interesting for you, uh, you to hear a quick roundup uh, of some reports that I got this morning from contacts that I have in uh, in schools uh, around the UK, uh, around England. Um, and it seemed to me that um, there's a difference between how secondary and primary schools are treating uh, homeschooling. Second, uh, primary schools are um, keeping in more regular contact uh, with their pupils. There tend to be fewer uh, pupils in primary schools than in secondary schools. And um, many schools are openly saying that they're prioritising a pastoral approach. Uh, with concern on the children's mental health, um, concern for their anxiety about the uncertainty in the current situation, um, not being exacerbated by putting pressure on them uh, by asking them to, to complete a lot of um, homework. Um, whereas in secondary schools, you'll find that uh, the picture is hugely varied. So. Um, I've heard that um, there are some schools, uh, this one's from a school in Devon, uh, where year, year nine students are being set four hours of uh, work every day um, and submitting it daily. Failure to submit is being followed up um, by a phone call from the school. That was also the case for a secondary school in Cambridgeshire. Um, some schools are um, finding that there's a huge variation in the uptake uh, of, of uh, students uh, in engaging with the work. So they may say that on the whole, uh, and this happened in London and Gloucestershire, uh, on the whole it was quite good but there were clearly some students who were not engaging at all. Um, some, some schools have taken the approach uh, to set particular pieces of work. Uh, from that they can then assess a sort of end of year uh, progress and they can report home to parents about this. But really interestingly, um, there are also some positives, um, which I'll talk about, about more. One of them being pride that parents are, uh, have communicated to me and seen their own children um, doing things that they don't normally see happening um, because they're at school. So it's also important to say that the government are aware of this. Um, the Education Select Committee had launched a consultation on the 4th of July uh, sorry, the 3rd of July, um, and engaged Ofqual to uh, 
petition uh, to to seek the um, the feedback from stakeholders in the education sector to consider the implications for next year's exam takers so as the current year 10 and 12 students they're looking into things like um, reducing elements uh, practical elements of the exam syllabus for instance um, field work um, practical elements in PE and drama um, and dance and replacing them with theory and the idea of um, introducing more options in exam questions but there's an organization run by head teachers that numbers around 600 at the moment they're called worth less and they've started started a petition to re to radically reduce the content of the exams for next year uh, GCSEs and A-levels and that currently is approaching 150,000 signatures when I checked uh, about an hour ago. So this leaves a lot of questions about the future for children who have been homeschooled during the school closure and the return to school and some of these are to do with quite negative things so what's this isolation doing to them? What is learning from a screen rather than with other people doing for them? Are they losing motivation? There's clearly potential to reproduce social disadvantage and uh, advantage the already advantaged. But I'm also hearing that um, there is room for them to think and also people talking about the benefits of children being bored now that they're free from the structure and control of uh, a content heavy way of teaching that we've come to uh, experience in, in England. They're going to pursue stuff that they're interested in that's not part of the curriculum. You see here is a duolingual app which is teaching uh, this child uh, Korean which ties in with one of his hobbies which is Taekwondo which is a, uh, something that he wouldn't have been able to do or wouldn't have had the time to do necessarily in school. So there's a widening about the kind of activities that students uh, are doing and maybe they're not so completely students as they are in school but children again and I mentioned that there's this parental pride but there's also this growing self-reliance that students seem to be having um, and they're finding out what they can do um, on their own some of them. In terms of the widening gap between the advantaged and the disadvantaged, we're already seeing uh, that there is a huge increase in, uh, in students who are not in employment, education or training, NEETS as they're called, um, is, is up and apprentices are down, uh, apprenticeships are down uh, and may fall further. What's going to happen with the exam results uh, for the current 16 and 18 year olds? Is it going to affect their pro progress into colleges, sixth forms and universities? And what's going to be happening with the, where is the worthless campaign going to take uh, the, um, this for next year's students who would be sitting exams? Is there going to be a retreat from higher education or are the numbers going to increase in higher education? Are young people faced with debt, serial precarious employment? What in essence 
this does is to raise huge questions about trying to run education as a market system. When those steps to success are called into question, we have to ask really for some honest assessment of what education is really about and what it's doing for our young people. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Shona. That was really interesting talking about um, the challenges I think that many of us will um, identify with in these, these uncertain times and particular for some some particular vulnerable groups of society as well. I think there's going to be sort of lots of questions talking about that in a while, but sort of like to just move us on to our next speaker if I can now. So I'd like to hand over to Maria, who's going to be talking about loneliness and mental health in people. Thank you, Maria. Great, thank you, Catherine. I'm just going to share my screen and hopefully start my slideshow. So what I'm going to focus on today is social isolation and mental health in children and young people. And really by thinking about consequences of lockdown, but also looking ahead. So let's begin with some principles from developmental psychology, which are the foundations for the rest of my talk today. Friendships are where we develop and refine our social skills. But it's important to remember that friends and social life looks different and has different functions at different stages of child development. So pre-primary, children mainly play alongside each other. But as they move into primary school age, friends start to become more important and play becomes one of the main ways through which children connect with others. Family relationships, though, remain the main influence on development for primary school aged children. Moving into our teenage years, though, friendships become a much more important source of identity and belongingness. And at this age, it's really important to have shared experiences with peers. The social group for teenagers is the way to try out new things, especially things that are different from what our families do and therefore to make that step towards adult independence. So over the past few months, we've all learned this new language around disease containment. But for clarity, I'll just quickly explain what I mean by a few key terms I'll be using today. So in the COVID-19 context, social isolation means keeping people separate who have symptoms of a disease. And quarantine, means keeping people separate when they've potentially come into contact with that disease but don't necessarily yet have symptoms. But more broadly, we normally think of social isolation as a lack of social contact. So maybe a lack of number of friends or range of friends or how often we see them. And loneliness is that painful experience we have, that painful emotional experience when our actual social contacts are different from what we would want them to be. So at the beginning of lockdown, colleagues and I were really concerned about how disease containment and the measures put in place would impact on mental health in children and young people. And we were also concerned about the unintended consequences of lockdown, especially increased loneliness. So to establish what is already known about this potential impact, we systematically searched all the research studies that have looked at mental health and social isolation, loneliness or quarantine 
in children and young people. And we found that in disease containment context specifically, there was very little evidence. We found only one study which focused on trauma after social isolation or quarantine in the H1N1, SARS and avian flu pandemics in America. It found that those children who had experienced these forms of disease containment were more likely to need um, help from mental health services. One in three had some trauma symptoms. One in eight had difficulties with grief, with adjustment or with um, acute stress. And one in 20 met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. We found far more studies which looked at links between loneliness and mental health. When measured at the same point in time, loneliness was consistently related to increased anxiety and increased depression symptoms. Over time, um, we found, again, evidence that loneliness when measured now is related to increased depression and increased anxiety symptoms later. Importantly, there's some evidence that it's the duration of loneliness rather than the intensity of loneliness that's most important in that association. So of course the disease containment measures have been necessary to contain the spread of COVID-19. But we have good reason to believe that social isolation and loneliness are bad for mental health. And there's emerging evidence in this COVID context that is consistent with this. So we know that lockdown loneliness is a real problem, particularly for children who are finding it really hard not to see their friends. For teenagers who are reporting higher loneliness than their parents are reporting, and for young adults under 25 who report being more lonely during this time than any other adult age group. There are also signs that mental health problem symptoms have increased in children and young people during this time. At the beginning of lockdown, a third of young people surveyed by Young Minds, for example, said the pandemic had made their mental health much worse. Several survey studies across the world have suggested that parents are reporting increased emotional and behavioral difficulties in their children. And early results from the CoSpace online survey of over 8,000 parents of four to 16 year olds here in the UK indicated that 40% of parents felt they need help in the current context with managing their children's emotions. So now more than ever, we want children and young people to be resilient, right? That is that they can manage stress, cope with change, bounce back from difficult life experiences and have positive outcomes. And to build this resilience and promote well-being, we need to build up the protective factors and to decrease risk factors wherever possible. So what can we do? Well, a key risk factor here is loneliness. We need to minimize the duration of loneliness wherever possible. And what's important is physical distancing doesn't have to mean social disconnection. As schools resume, we need to prioritize the emotional and social catch up as much as the academic catch up. Reconnecting socially, including through play, is absolutely critical here. And the expectations we set academically need to allow for the social and emotional catch-up too.
To build protective factors, we also need to promote well-being. At school, community and national level, public health messages should be sent out about what activities support well-being in children and young people, things like being physically active, socialising, doing enjoyable activities, spending time in nature and keeping a, a daily structure or routine. For some young people though, a more targeted and individualised approach is going to be needed to support them with their mental health. We need to firstly make sure that children and young people and their families know who they can talk to if they're struggling. We need to make sure that there are a range of supports in place for them. At lower levels of intensity, that might include parent-led self-help approaches and computer-based cognitive behaviour therapy programmes, for example, which we know have small but positive effects on mental health. We also know that these programmes tend to work best if there's some therapeutic input from a person, and so we need to ensure that that can be put in place. But also at higher levels of intensity, we need to make sure that our specialist mental health services are prepared to deal with this increase in demand and to provide evidence-based treatments in a timely and accessible manner, including remotely while disease containment measures remain in place. So there's three things I'd like you to take away from what I've said today. It's firstly, physical distancing does not have to mean socially disconnecting. We need to promote well-being in every way we can, and we need to be accessible and responsive in terms of our mental health services now more than ever. If you're interested in these ideas that I've spoken about today, and um, there's a couple of references that I mentioned here, but also a, a group of colleagues, um, esteemed professors around the country, are regularly posting blogs on the reachwell.org site, which is really worth looking at. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maria. Um, again, some really pertinent points there that I think we can all um, really identify with. Um, and I particularly liked all those ideas that, about how we can help to pro promote some protective factors, um, some really useful pr practical ideas there. And I can see some questions coming in about that that we can, we can come to in our next session, in the question and answer session. So thank you very much. So can I now hand over to um, Justin, who is going to be looking at mental health of children in foster homes. Hi everyone, I'm, I'm Justin Rogers and uh, I used to be a lecturer in um, social work at the University of Bath up until about um, eight, eight to ten weeks ago at the, at, the, at the start of the lockdown. But I've gone off now to work at a, a charitable foundation uh, called the Martin James Foundation. Um, and I'm the Director of Programmes and Knowledge there. Um, and the Martin James Foundation, there's, there's kind of three elements to it. We've got a, a central team that are based in, in Edgbaston in Birmingham that deals a lot with um, childcare reform, alternative care, and issues around deinstitutionalization of children across the globe, moving children out of orphanages uh, into, into more family-based care. Um, and, and with that, we've also got um, in the foundation, we've got key assets organisations that actually deliver foster care in a number of countries. They're not-for-profit fostering agencies that run in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan and Canada as well. So from, from their work, really, their day-to-day -day work, we're, we're learning about family-based care, providing family-based care and then using that to develop 
um, pilot projects in, in low to middle income countries where we're trying to shift away from institutional care to using family-based provision like foster care. Um, so for example, we've got projects in Madagascar, uh, in India and Indonesia as well, where we're, where we're working on these issues about, about uh, deinstitutionalization. But in the UK as well, we've also got uh, a, a project called Foster Talk, uh, an organization called Foster Talk that are part, that's part of the foundation. Uh, and Foster Talk is uh, a not-for-profit service that provides advocacy and support services to foster carers. Um, so they, they've got a, 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 an advice line that, that foster carers can call in and seek advice from, from uh, trained social workers. They're, they're independent, as I say, to local authorities and fostering agencies. So they also provide support if there's an allocation made against a foster carer as well. Um, but the foster line service is actually a service that they run for the government. So the DfE uh, contract them to provide this service to support fostering households up and down the country. So when we're talking about fostering, and I know different people have different understandings, we're talking about children that have um, quite often been removed from their families because of concerns around child protection or safeguarding issues. Uh, and, the, and the vast majority of children that are in foster care placements are there predominantly because they've experienced in some way either abuse or neglect. So foster carers, are, this, you know, this presentation I'm gonna to talk to you about today really focuses in on a specific group of children and young people and how they've experienced the lockdown as well. So these are children that aren't placed with, with family members uh, predominantly. They're, they're placed with people that, they're, that are quite often um, recruited, assessed and supported by local authorities to look after children who, who can't remain with their families. So just to, just to flag up what some of the issues are really in relation to children, just for some context, and you've heard about it from, from Shona and Maria's um, uh, presentations here as well, but some of the, some of the issues in relation to, to, to children's rights, welfare and protection really amongst this kind of, in, in this post, in this COVID-19 world have been highlighted in this UNICEF's research agenda, I think. So these are some of the real key factors that are, that are facing children and young people at this time. So we've got issues around child protection, you know, with increased um, domestic violence in households as a result of the lockdown and pressures in households. Um, also, as we've heard from Shona about the about children, you know, not being in school and what school can provide. One one important aspect of schools is that they often provide a real safety net for vulnerable children, and they're quite often the 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 um, the referring agents really to, to child protection services. So you'll find that schools quite often make those referrals into, into child protection. So there's a safety net removed in, in relation to that for, for children during this lockdown period. Um, children online as well, you know, there's more time being spent online for children. And with that, there, there, is, there are, you know, lots of benefits. And we've heard about that, children connecting, uh, playing FIFA and battle ships, as we saw we've shown as children there. But also there are, you know, with more time online and with more people at home being online, there are risks around that as well, around exploitation as well, potentially. So there are things that we, we need to be mindful of in relation to that. So risk of exploitation and abuse online as well for children. The issues around education as well, I guess, it, it, you know, it's been highlighted by Shona quite, quite in some detail. So I guess we need to ensure, you know, how children kind of um, continue to access their learning really and also about how we can uh, build on what what some children may have missed during this period as well in terms of their their education particularly for those disadvantaged and vulnerable children that might be a little bit behind in their education in some ways 
in terms of social protection as well, there's going to be economies that are going to be under pressure as well now, and we're seeing that with some of the, you know, some of the, the issues around youth unemployment that, uh, that are being predicted as well. So uh, there's going to be real uh, uh, pressure on, on welfare services and, and the need for, for protection services to be increased potentially as well during, you know, during these times. And I think what kind of runs underneath all of this stuff and is around children's well-being and in particular, in particular, their mental health. Um, this is, you know, unpre unprecedented times. And I think it's uh, it, it, as this as this quote that was published in The Lancet highlights that the, the actual um, physical impacts of, of, of this um, uh, pandemic are, are, are one thing. But actually, the impact on people's mental health is going to be something that is likely to to long outlast that, that physical health uh, impact. So we need to be really, really sort of really mindful of that as, we, as we're going forward. And, you know, these, the, the impacts that this is gonna be having is stuff around the things that Maria uh, highlighted, the things around kind of social isolation and loneliness, uh, also anxiety around health as well. You know, it's, it's a, it is a pandemic of, of, of proportions that, that um, causes anxiety and most people will be anxious in some way about 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 the situation and, and this is particularly true for children as well so with, within this context at the foundation and with our links to, to to foster talk what we what we decided to do a couple of weeks ago was to do a a quick response survey to look at the issues for fostering households um, so we put out a very quick survey which gives us a kind of snapshot in time about what what the situation was like for children and 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 the foster carers in this settings so we put this out to the to the members of the of foster talk and we got some responses from from over 400 foster carers based in england um, and we put a, a brief report together on that and also it's formed the basis of a, a submission that we've made to the to the um, inquiry by the uk government and through the dfe as well so hopefully what we from a very from a very quick response survey we've got a flavor of what's going on in fostering households some of the challenges that are going on and, and also from that built some recommendations in for, for for the government around ways to best support uh, a group who are predominantly you know some of the most vulnerable children those living without their living without the care of their of their of their, of their families so what did we find so well we found Unsurprisingly, that, 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 that large numbers of the, of, of the children were experiencing, uh, were worried and anxious about the pandemic. And this was reported by the, the foster carers. So there are some limitations with this survey. We, we weren't able to reach the children directly, but from the carers' perspectives, uh, there was 60% of the, of the children and young people were worried and anxious about, about, the, about lockdown and, and the virus. And um, I think this, fits in with, with previous surveys that have been done around, around the mental health as well, the, the survey that Maria mentioned as well before. So, so there, it's similar numbers with children and young people in, in foster care, but it's important to add that children and young people in foster care are quite often overrepresented in, in statistics around mental health. Uh, and predominantly because of some of their, their prior experiences, they can be success, susceptible to, to mental health challenges particularly around the issues that they've experienced trauma, abuse and neglect that can kind of impact on those things as well. So 60% of the carers reported that children and young people were anxious about the virus and 36% of children and young people's mental health uh, has deteriorated or, it's, or it was worse or much worse than prior to the lockdown. So around a third 
a third of the of the carers reported that the children's mental health had had, had been impacted and had deteriorated as a result of, of, the, of the lockdown. And this is an interesting finding as well. So we know that from, from this group that, that, that they are overrepresented in, in mental health services, you know, and in the statistics around that, as I say. So it, it, I think it's something like 16% of, of children and young people receive some support for their mental health in the general population. Whereas in the in in for looked after children, for children who are in care, it can be it can be around 45%, uh, as some of the statistics suggest. They're quite dated the statistics on that, and there was going to be some work done to update those. But um, yeah, as you can see, they're, they're overrepresented when it comes to, to, to services in, in this area. And, and that was borne out with this group as well. So if we if we think it's 16% of the general population of, of, of children and young people. The, care, the carers in our survey, 33% of them reported that the, the children that they were caring for were already, prior to the pandemic and the lockdown, were already receiving support for their mental health. And what was interesting in this is that, that it was almost 50-50 really as the result of this was whether they, whether they continued to receive services or not. So 45% of, of, of the group said that the services were, were, were stopped, um, stopped during the lockdown. Um, we need to unpack that a bit more to know what they meant by that. Was it disrupted? Was it suspended for a bit? Uh, was it suspended for longer? And we're doing some further research into that. But it is quite telling that that's, that that's quite a high number for children and young people who are experiencing difficulties. And th these are quite powerful as well, these, these quotations that the foster carers provided about what this meant for them in their foster placements and what it meant for the children and young people. So this one, they're now very clingy. They can't bear me talking to anyone, even on the phone. The lockdown seems to have stimulated traumatic memories from their past, causing nightmares and periodic low mood and anxiety. And the carers as well, you know, they, they talked about this as well, that, they had, that the children had nightmares about monster germs as well. So these things are really having, a, having an impact on, on children and young people's kind of anxiety levels and the things that they're worried about as well. So, the data shows that some carers also perceived the, the behaviour of the, um, becoming more challenging as well. So behaviour became more challenging um, with 36% of the carers reporting that behaviour had become worse or much worse. But this is something that's really important to highlight in this as well. And I know we're, we're running, running a little low on time, but the, what's really important to highlight is actually 21% of the carers felt that there were some improvements in the children and young people's behaviour. And this quotation here that talks about from carers I've spoken to, it seems that many young people in foster care have felt a relief from the regular pressures of life. Most have found lockdown very comfortable. There's been an improvement in the bonding of the family unit as well. And, and some of the practitioners that we've spoken to around this stuff, and we're going to do a bit more research on this, and we're going to interview practitioners, um, social uh, practitioners, um, carers, and children and young people in our next part of the study over in Ireland. Um, but we're, we're you know we're really interested in this because there was some talk of about like a cocoon effect that actually that the, the the lockdown has meant that children and families have had this period of time away from lots of pressures like contact with birth families for example was cited as a as, as a potential reason the, the pressures of going to school all of those things that, that can be quite stressful as well some of that stuff had been relieved from 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 some of these young people who are already dealing with challenges of being away from their families so it's an interesting area to look at in a bit more detail. And we presented these findings to the Eurochild Network. Um, 
and, and some of the colleagues in there felt that it was very different for different groups of children. So for example, for children with disabilities, at the start of the lockdown, practitioners were telling us, well, actually it was very stressful for those children because there was a change in routine, a change in their day-to-day -day lives. Whereas for some teenagers at the start of lockdown, it was very positive, they didn't have to go to school. But actually as the lockdowns progressed, those things have shifted a little bit according to some practitioners. So the children in, with disabilities have actually adapted to, to, to the situation, whereas teenagers have become increasingly frustrated about it potentially and, and wanting to have more interaction with their friends because they're so important at that point in their, in their development. So some interesting, it's an interesting finding that I think needs un unpacking a little bit more and we're hoping, to, as I say, to do more research into that. Uh, another important aspect of this is the impact that it's had on the fostering households as well. So, you know, nearly a third of them reported that the that caring during this lockdown had impacted really negatively on their own mental health. And some of these quotations really, really sum that up. So uh, looking after um, my mental and emotional well-being um, has, been, has become incredibly difficult as there is literally no physical or emotional escape from the confines of this lockdown or meeting the increasingly challenging needs of the foster children. And these foster carers are doing a tremendous job. You know, there's foster carers that are, that are receiving children into their homes as well during this time. So you can imagine that's a very stressful point. And, and one of the carers highlighted that at the bottom, having emergency placements stressed us out at first, waiting 14 days to see if they had the virus or had passed it on to us. So you can imagine, you know, you're in, a, in a, a, your own social bubble in lockdown and you're welcoming vulnerable children that have been removed from their families into your home. So this, these foster carers are doing, doing a, a, an amazing job in that stuff uh, in a very stressful time. So we've made some recommendations and this is the, the last slide that I'll, that I'll leave you with. But um, it, it, this is what was the kind of basis of our, our recommendations to the, to the DfE inquiry is that we need to ensure that children and young people who have had their mental health support disrupted, that that needs to be reinstated uh, and, they, and they need to urgently access help if that's still required for them as well. We need to learn more about this stuff as well. If this is going to become any way, uh, uh, and hopefully not, uh, a, a recurrent situation and we're going to get future lockdowns, we need to know why support services were disrupted and learn those lessons to make sure that they can continue for children and young people. And also we need to look to say to see actually this is a vulnerable group anyway you know the, the children in alternative care in, you know residential care or foster homes they're you know they're vulnerable to mental health and, and because of their experiences of trauma so that support to this group it's we're, we, we're advocating that that's extended in this, this group and they get more support and also it's important that we care for our carers in this situation the foster carers as i say are, are looking after the country some of the country's most vulnerable children and young people so Given the situation that they're in, I mean, parents could, uh, I'm guessing on this, on this webinar, will be able to empathise with that situation. But some of the foster carers are looking after children who have experienced some significant um, adverse childhood experiences. So it's, it's, there are some increased stress with, stresses with that for foster carers. So we need to make sure that we're assessing their well-being at this time and putting support plans in place for them so that they can look after the so they can look after themselves, have some self-care, so that they can then, uh, you know, provide the support and care that's needed for, for vulnerable children. And they also need some recognition, I think, foster carers. You know, they've made a, a real contribution during this pandemic, and we've seen a lot around social care workers and people working in the national health. Um, but we're, we're arguing that foster carers need to be recognised in that. And one 
key aspect of that is for them to be recognised as key workers as well. So we think that they should be given key worker status. And we, we believe that that is something that's coming along from, from, from some of the campaigning around that as well. But thank you very much. That's my, that's my last slide. So thank you. Look forward to questions. Thank you very much, Justin. Again, that was fascinating. I think those quotes really vividly demonstrate some of the um, issues for people, um, both children and foster carers, and sort of highlighting those the increase in mental health difficulties is really important. So I'm, I'm sort of conscious of time. We've got some questions coming in. So I'm going to sort of try and take us through as many of them as we can. So thank you to people who've sent them in. Uh, first question is from Annie Brookman Byrne. It's then, do we have policy recommend policy recommendations for how to reduce the growing attainment gap between disadvantaged students and their peers? So, Shona, I wonder if you would like to um, start with that one. Uh, this is a very short answer, which is no. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, Justin re uh, mentioned the campaigning that's growing around uh, foster carers and the, the children in care, and um, there. Are, I mentioned the uh, the um, the head teachers who are campaigning uh, to have things um, uh, introduced to mitigate the effects of COVID on next year's exams. Uh, the work of the NFER that I mentioned in my presentation highlights that different children will be affected differently, um, and I think there's a, a growing there will be growing voices in the debate uh, that may break the very centralised and heavy heavily controlled um, grip that successive governments of all colours have had on education uh, up until this point. So this disruption um, could bring some positives uh, and it could make um, room for different voices to be heard and different concerns to be raised. So that's one to look out for, I think. Um, interesting that you mentioned the NFBR research because there was actually another question that said um, it sounds as though it was based on work um, from a school set. Um, so if, given what you were saying about the unintended benefits, so to children like room to think, be bored, pursuing their own interests, is there any research that explores that sort of the unintended consequences based on parent-child reports? Um, uh, not that I'm aware of yet. Um, it's something that I'm interested in finding out um, from children's perspectives. Um, putting together a, um, a bid to get some funding to research that um, in, the, in the coming weeks. Um, and I think it's really important um, because you can ask schools um, uh, and the NFER really was asking about how many pieces of work were returned. Um, it doesn't really tell us very much. Um, and what uh, Maria and Justin are talking about is really about putting the children at the heart of uh, our concerns at the moment. Uh, and to mitigate any effects that uh, this time might have on on this generation. Um, uh, we don't want the, the COVID generation to be something that's um, a bit bad news all around. So it's something that um, if anybody hears of any uh, research on the, the positive effects, which is all anecdotal from my point of view, um, please do get in touch and let me know. Thank you. So. Um question maybe Maria might like to sort of talk to this one um, are we more concerned with lost learning during school closures or lost opportunities for social development what do we I think we should be more concerned about social development I would though I'm a psychologist um, and educational professionals might disagree with me but 
What we know um, really clearly from the literature is that children who are struggling in terms of having psychological distress and children who are struggling socially end up struggling academically and don't achieve what they're capable of. So ensuring that they are doing the best they can in terms of their well-being and that they're um, able to interact and socialize and play means that their learning later will, will have a benefit. So for me, we need to get right the social and emotional first to enable the learning later. Justin, would you like, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, sorry, I was just removing my cat from the, from, made a quick appearance there. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're quite right. And you know, this is that, that issue that we were talking about in foster care, about actually is there, is the, 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 the young people that were doing well in placement, the children and young people that were actually getting some benefits out of that, what is that about? And is that about actually prioritising those social relationships, that nurturing, that care and that warmth? You know, in a situation where normally if a child in, in foster care is, is in placement, they're going off to contact with their birth families, they're going to school. And have they actually formed those relationships with their carers and, and got that kind of secure base that we, that we often talk about, you know, that secure attachment with their caregivers. So th there may be something to learn from this, actually, about what, what, what do we do going forward with, with children and young people in foster care in placement? Is there a period of time where contact and school isn't a priority? and the relationship is a priority uh, and, and until they can yeah, get, back, get back into the swing of some of those things. Do we have to prioritise some of those things? And, and, and our, our next bit of research is going to try and unpack that. And interestingly, though, one of the things about going to try and do research now, we want to do it now. You know, this is a time to go out and talk to children and young people and talk to families. It's about some of the, it's an interesting point. It's a bit, bit of a tangent, but stuff around um, looking at, getting through ethical procedures at this time to get out and start to do this research so you can do it quickly. Um, and I think, I think some of that we can learn from some of that in terms of our research governance processes because it's really difficult to get to children and young people at the best of times. But I think in this scenario where we would like to get out and start doing some of this research, I think it, it, we need to, of course, have the safeguards, but make sure that it's not a barrier to doing some of this work. It's an important time to capture this and learn about this stuff. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it, children's voices are really important and it can be very difficult, but it's a really necessary thing for us to do. I was just struck in the presentations that you were all talking about benefits to children and families as well as the negatives. So, you know, just might be quite nice to think of there's ways we can hold those benefits when we do return back to school and, and, uh, and to think about, I, I find it quite interesting for some children, it's less stressful being in school or being trying to manage those relationships and how we can how we can ease that there's a slightly related question that's saying can the panel say something about the impact of the social distance measures proposed in schools for september namely the continuation of bubbles non-contacted sports no singing etc and then the implications of these measures on children's existing mental health dates uh, maria do you want to start with that perhaps think we're seeing from around the world a huge variation in approaches as to how um, schools are reopening. We're seeing some wonderfully creative solutions to the problem that I was mentioning of physically distancing while socially still connecting. Um, wonderfully creative ways of addressing that, but equally ways that 
that we can see probably aren't helpful for, for young people. Young people in the surveys that I've read are telling us they're really worried about what social distancing will be like. And I think one of the very important things for us to do in advance of schools reopening is to send children information about how things are going to be in school, maybe even videos of what school's going to look like, to prepare them for what it's going to look like. It's not going to be the same and that's going to be difficult. But the best we can do to prepare them for that um, so that they know going into it what to expect, I think that stands them in good stead. Show yeah, I think that's that's something I'm aware of is underway in um, in lots of schools uh, I have contact with, um, but I'm also uh, aware that there's a sort of um, from head teachers uh, there is the compliance uh, aspect uh, to following the instructions as they are at the moment to socially distance, whilst recognising that it's not actually going to be there's not going to be any social distance. Um, when you call a bubble a year group, uh, in some secondary schools that could be 250 children. Um, and you've got narrow corridors, you've got unlimited number of uh, toilets and changing facilities and so forth. Um, stagger, stagger the day as much as you want. One head teacher said to me last week, uh, I think we're going to start serving lunch at 9am and finish about 3am, 3pm uh, 3 <laughs> um, to stagger the lunch break for her secondary school. Um, so there's huge question marks about the practicability uh, of socially distancing groups of children um, in that in that size. And I, I'd like I'd like to say that I uh, I I'm really interested what Justin said about uh, different priorities um, and what Maria is saying about helping children to transition. It's it's a it's, a, it's like going for a, a starting a new school in, in a sense and some of the, the, the transition measures that have help, helped support children from primary into secondary school, for instance, could be uh, things that schools are looking at now to help reintegrate students into schools that will look very different to the ones that they're used to. Yeah, just picking up on that, I, that was what was coming to mind for me, you know, the transition from, from primary to, 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 to secondary school, you know, they've made some real practice in that area as, as improved over years, hasn't it? And, and, and it's done in a much more sensitive way than when I think back to, to my transition from primary to secondary school, right? And uh, yeah, it's one thing to go back to a, a classroom with, with children and children that you know and your peer group that you feel, you feel secure with and, and, and potentially with a teacher that you know, but that transition up into a, a secondary school that's a, that, that can be a whole new world for, for children at a, a point in time where, where their development around puberty and neurological development is 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 all, all happening at the same time as well, right? So it's uh, yeah, really it really needs to be as supported as it can be, and I'm sure schools are trying to plan with that, but there's still so much uncertainty around it, isn't there at this time? Yeah, and I think Shona had some really good points there about just how practical some of these ideas are, um, and actually how easy it is for young people to remember to socially distance and. Um, you know, in the heat of the excitement of seeing each other again and, and, and yeah, the sheer quantity of numbers, I think. Um, but uh, does, I'd just like to invite each of you, if you have any final comments you'd like to make before we um, round up for today. Shona, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Um, I think two, two points really. One is about funding um, and where the money is going to come from to continue supporting the, the services uh, that Maria and Justin mentioned. Um, 
and uncertainty over that. And also what Justin said about um, caring for the carers. Um, teachers are being sent back into school with no PPE, as far as I'm aware. At this point, there's no plan to provide them with any. Um, so uh, why are we doing that? Good point. Maria? Yeah, I guess I keep thinking this is a little bit like lots of kids who haven't ridden a bicycle for a long time getting back on a bicycle again. Most of them will wobble. Um, most of them will probably get back to riding the bicycle without too much support, but there'll be some of them who really need a lot of help to first come back to the bicycle and second to get on it and manage to ride it. So I think we can think of it like that. Most young people will bounce back. They might wobble a bit, but they'll bounce back with a bit of support, but some will need a bit more. That's a great analogy. Thank you. Uh, Justin, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just echo what, what Shona and Maria are saying, but I think we do need to, to, to build back better, don't we, as best we can now in these, in these difficult circumstances. But I'm also in care, care for the carers and the teachers, definitely, because they're doing such an amazing, uh, amazing job. But I, I also think that there is some hope in all of this as well from children and young people themselves. And, you know, we, we've, we've seen out of, you know, sort of existential threats like climate change, our children have developed their empathy and have become a lot more socially active and have gone on to organize themselves as well into, you know, we, we look at Greta Thunberg and, and the work that young people and children and young people have done there. So I'm wondering if coming out of this, we might see some children and young people, besides those that are struggling with their, with, with their mental health, that are actually going to be showing their resilience and, and really becoming more socially active as a result of, of, of what's happened over the last few weeks as well. Yeah, also some very good points. And I think that's been one of the, um, Hi, it's me listening to say to all of you that there were some real positives coming out of things as well. And actually remembering that even if children are struggling with mental health, they can also be resilient in other ways. And actually, um, you know, it doesn't mean to say that people, that, that even with mental health difficulties, that they're struggling in every domain of their life. Mm -hmm. And I think exactly that, if we can think about how to build on these positives and actually ultimately turn this into some something that we can build on and create a positive experience in some way that would be quite an amazing outcome from a neg very negative um, situation so. but uh, can I thank all of you Shona Maria Justin for today that was really interesting I was um, really glad to be able to hit be here and listen to it um, thank you everyone who joined us um, it's you know this unusual situation where we can't see you and but hopefully you were finding this quite interesting um, as mentioned before, it will be available as a podcast and an online video if you want to go back and listen to it again on the IPR website. And uh, hopefully you'll um, join us on another event quite soon. So thank you very much and have a good afternoon. Thank you, Catherine.